one of our people who's not here today, uh, and that's uh, Debbie Stewart. George is here, uh, but Debbie and George were in uh, Germany and Austria, I think. Uh, you're in Austria too, right? Uh, 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 for a couple of weeks, and unfortunately, Debbie caught COVID, and she is stuck, and uh, she just texted me. I'm so lucky. I'm watching church live in my COVID room, so I'm going to text her back. We're the lucky ones. We love you. So, do you guys just wave at the camera and tell her that you care about her? So, there you go. What am I going to do with my phone now? I guess it's going in my pocket. By the way, don't look at your phone in church, please. (laughs) Well, how can we possibly have the ministry of the disciples today. You feel like that at all? Do you see the things that the disciples did and think, oh, that was so great that those things happened 2,000 years ago. If only the disciples knew how hard it was today. I could get fired at my job for speaking out of turn. And you can't. Right? Listen to their experience with the Sanhedrin. They stand in front of them, and they're like, the Sanhedrin says, what do you guys think you're doing? And uh, Peter and John say, oh, you mean miraculously healing the crippled man? You're really criticizing us for that? They're like, well, um, would you just please stop talking? Like, do Do you get how silly the Jewish religious leaders look here? The leaders of the Jews look. I mean, there's nothing that they can do. And, and do you think, is there some part in your heart or in your mind where you think, if only, if only we could have the ministry of Peter and John and the rest of the apostles, if only our church looked like the church in Acts, you then, then we wouldn't have any problems anymore. Then. I'd be able to tell people the good news about Jesus Christ. Like, hey, you know, God, I'm happy to tell people about what you've done for me as long as it's really spectacular, right? As, as long as you accompany it with signs and wonders. Like, if you want to heal somebody through me, and then, then I'll tell people about you. Then I'll tell them about who you are. Because it's scary and dangerous to do it today. Well, Let me tell you, first of all, I'm right there with you. I have those same conversations with God. If you're talking to God in that way and saying, God, uh, do you really want me to share when it could cost me so much? I'm, I'm asking the same question. Even as a pastor, you know, it's great as a pastor because uh, you, one of my favorite experiences is, you know, you, you walk up to somebody, you get to know them a little bit, you're having a conversation, maybe they're cursing a little bit or something. They say, well, what do you do for a living? I say, well, I'm a pastor. Say, oh, I'm so sorry for, you know, the way I've been talking, you know, around you. And it, it always cracks me up a little bit. I think, who do you think I am? Like, do you think I've never heard any of these words before, number one? And, and secondly, do you think that you should really be worried about what I think about your language? You don't, don't worry about me. You know, worry about the God who hears. If you can't say it in front of me, then, hmm. I try not to be condemning. Like, yeah, you're going to hell. Like, no, 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 we don't do that. <laughs> but... 
just, you know, try and point people back toward it. So, but, you know, as, as a pastor, it's a little bit different for me. I, I know that. I get that. Like, pastors are supposed to be religiously weird. But the, the rest of us, we got a reputation to maintain in one way or another. People will accept from me things that they may not accept from you. But I still feel it. Number one, I wasn't always a pastor. Uh, I worked at a bank for four years. And I interacted with all sorts of people. One of my favorite experiences at the bank was uh, when I started working there when I was 23. And it was five, no, like three or four months before Kayla and I were getting married. Kayla was living down here, and I was up in the Seattle area. And I uh, used to, people would come in uh, to the bank, and we'd get to know each other a little bit, you know, some of our frequent customers, and, and they'd find out I was getting married soon. And you know, like 50% of the people who found that out said, gosh, I really hope it works out. It's like, oh, wow, that's really depressing. Like, and, and, and I would always respond to them and say, you know what? I know there's a lot of things in my life that are outside of my control. My circumstances, my experiences, uh, what happens, I can't control you know, the, the woman who's about to become my wife, but I'm confident that we're going to be okay because we've determined that we want to have a godly marriage with each other, where it's more about the commitment that we make than it is about the uh, comfort or the ease that we feel. Now, it obviously needs a lot more unpacking, because I know marriage is not easy. I've experienced that at times in my own marriage. Mostly Kayla's experienced that in her own marriage. And uh, and I know that for some of us here, those marriages haven't always worked out. This message is not about, like, you know, you really messed it up or something. It's, I, I just want to point out that there's one of those opportunities where I got to tell people something about my faith. And some people looked at me like, you are so dumb. You think you got, we thought we were going to be fine and we weren't. And some people uh, looked at me, and they're like, oh, no. Like, <laughs> what's coming next? And other people were like, wow, that's amazing. And either we're on the same page with you, or uh, we want to know more. We got the gamut of responses. I had employees. I, I managed a staff. And uh, I had a person at one point who was clearly... Uh, an alcoholic who is working for me. And how do I balance my job requirements and employment law with pointing this person toward the hope that is in Jesus Christ? How do I hold all of those things together? And it's hard, isn't it? I'm not going to stand up here and tell you it's easy. The disciples didn't have it easy. I think that we get this idea that, you know, they did the miracle and, you know, everyone's like, woo! And the, the religious authorities saw it and they're like, there's nothing that we can do. And, and so then, and 2,000 people after this miracle said, we're going to follow Jesus. And we start to think that's what the apostles' entire lives were like. But it wasn't. Do you remember at the beginning of this story, we didn't read the very beginning of this, did we? It says this. They healed the man, and then the whole crowd comes up to him, and they share the truth about Jesus. And then it says the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John, and they were greatly disturbed. Actually, the, maybe a better translation is they were burdened by what they were hearing. Something was moving in their heart saying, we have to do something about this. 
I love the way this passage portrays the Jewish religious leaders because they're so real. You know, uh, if you watch the news regularly, uh, you don't have to raise your hand and identify yourself, but if you do that, or if you, maybe you've got some uh, political commentators or something you like to listen to, and, and that's fine. You can do that. I'm not criticizing it at all. But you know, something that I noticed when, when we listen to those shows, when we watch those shows, uh, it's, it's if only everyone was on our side, right? These people are on the other side, and clearly that makes them bad and evil, right? Because we boil down the world like that, don't we? There's them and there's us. And them are bad and us are good. But that's not what this passage does. These religious leaders, they come in and they are burdened by what the apostles are teaching. It actually gives two reasons. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people. Now that's a neutral statement, isn't it? It's not because they were teaching them a certain thing, but it's because they were teaching the people. And they're saying, we are in charge of making sure that the people hear good teaching. And all of a sudden, they're kind of sympathetic characters, aren't they? Folks, if I invited people from other faiths up here to preach to us out of the Bible, would you keep me as your pastor? The right answer is no. I hope not. Because part of my job and part of the job of the elders of this church is to make sure that when you hear teaching, that it is teaching that is touching on the truth of who God is and what he's done for us. They're doing a good thing here. And then secondly, they are disturbed. They are burdened because the apostles are proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Now, uh, that's going to touch on two things. First of all, the Sadducees say there is no such thing as the resurrection of the dead. They're one of the, the, the authorities here that are in view. But there's also the fact that the resurrection of the dead is connected to Jesus Christ. And who killed Jesus Christ? These very same religious leaders. They're a mixed group, aren't they? With mixed motives and mixed intentions, they're just human like you and I. They're not more evil. They're not even more broken. They just haven't been rescued yet by Jesus. They're people that God loves and God misses and invites into his family. Those are Peter and John's opponents here. Just got a lot trickier, didn't it? See, Jesus, I, I once heard uh, one of my favorite theologians say, John 3.16 does not say that for God so hated the world that he sent his one and only son. It says, for God so loved the world. Who are the people that we count our enemies? Maybe they're people on Capitol Hill, you know, who are uh, writing laws that are unfriendly to our faith. Maybe they're, they're people in the governor's mansion who we, we don't like their leadership or we think that they're out to get the church. You know, maybe, maybe they're people who live across the street from us and they just don't treat us well. Who are our enemies in this world? See, God wants us to see that they are more like us, more like me than anything else. C.S. Lewis, uh, in his book, Mere Christianity, says no one does 
evil for evil's sake. We all do evil. We all commit sin in one way or another because we are in pursuit of something that is good. And we're trying to get at it by the wrong way. And the problem is when we get at it by the wrong way, we poison that whole experience. We poison that whole pursuit. See, our enemies, are they people who are worthy of our hatred or worthy of our compassion? Well, if we're anything like Jesus, they're the latter. They're people who are worthy of our compassion. The Apostle Paul in one of his letters writes to a church and he says, hey, remember, remember, you look at the Gentiles, you look at the people who don't know Jesus, and you think, those guys are so bad. They've got it so wrong. And Paul says, remember, you were once just like them. It's not us versus them. It's us and how do we love them? And that's hard. It's a lot easier to say, if we could just get rid of the bad people, then everything would be better. But God says, no, 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 no. I do not throw people away. If we can just reform the bad people, if we can just rescue and save the people who don't know Jesus. Okay, that's all for free. As I say, that uh, it's, it's hard, right? It's, we risk something when we share the truth about who Jesus is. And as we came to the beginning of this passage, when, when the religious leaders saw that the disciples were, were teaching about the resurrection of the dead, what did they do? They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. So first of all, the disciples did pay a price, didn't they, for talking about Jesus? And I want to be encouraged by that because it means that if we pay a price for following Jesus, we're not doing it wrong. It doesn't always mean we're doing it right. Sometimes we can deserve to pay a price for something. But if we pay a price for following Jesus, it doesn't mean that we're doing it wrong. As a matter of fact, the disciples later on will be arrested again in the book of Acts. And this time they'll be beaten. And they will go home after their beating, rejoicing that they have been counted worthy of suffering for the name. Because they're saying, we were a little bit like Jesus before when we got arrested. We're a lot like Jesus now. When we made people so mad by telling them how they could be saved. Not because they were trying to make them mad. But because this is what happened to Jesus when he shared the good news. See, often we want to risk little for the gospel, don't we? When I say, I will, I will share as long as it costs me very little. But the disciples say, but if it costs us much, we're actually more like Jesus than we were before. Now, the disciples did pay a price. Here they spent a night in jail. Later they will be beaten. Later, uh, 10 of the 11, actually 11 of 12, depends on how we count them here, but 11 of the 12 apostles will die for their faith according to church tradition. And uh, you, you may have heard me say this several times in the last few weeks. The only apostle who didn't die for his faith was the apostle John, who was boiled alive, survived, and lived in exile for the rest of his life. These guys didn't have happy earthly outcomes. <laughs> now we're all ready to be done, right? Okay, that's it. Let's wrap it up. But why, why do I say all of this? 
even if we suffer for the sake of the gospel, here's what we see in this passage. The opponents of the gospel are utterly impotent to stop its spread. Did you pick that up? The people who go to the apostles and say, stop teaching. The people who go to the apostles and say, we're the authorities and you need to listen to us and do what we say. The people who go to the apostles and say, we have all of the training, all of the learning, all of the knowledge. You can't possibly be right when we say that this is the way you should go. They are utterly and completely powerless to stop the disciples from sharing the good news about Jesus Christ and to stop the church from growing. Why do I say this? So, first of all, I say this uh, because of what we find uh, in Peter's speech. Remember, Peter, uh, when they say, tell us what you are teaching and what grounds you have for teaching this sort of thing. They say uh, in verse 7, by what power or what name did you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame and are being asked how he was healed. You get what Peter does, first of all? He says, are you putting us on trial for healing this man? Is that really your play? Do you think that's going to work? Are you in the right for doing this? This sermon series is called Acts, the might of a potent church. We're making our way through Acts. And, you know, I, I'm not sure I love my... my serious title here, but here's the idea. The Holy Spirit is the strength and the power of the church. And what happens when Peter is called upon to give an account for the actions that he's taking in service to Jesus Christ? It says, first of all, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit said to them, are you taking the ministry that we've done by the Holy Spirit? this power that has been displayed through us, are you criticizing that? See, this, the scripture is making out that this wasn't Peter's wisdom at work here. Peter wasn't like, how can I come up with an answer that will utterly confound and defeat the purposes of the religious leaders here? No, Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit says, remember what you just did. By my power, you healed a crippled man. And somewhere in the passage, it says he was over 40 years old. Folks, when you hit 40, is your body working better or worse? It's, it's, there's a reason we say when you hit 40, you're over the hill, right? You're on your way down. Everything from here on out will work less well than it worked before. You have begun in earnest the process of deterioration, which will eventually lead to your dissolution completely. Do you remember what you did? Tell them about that. And, and here's the other thing we ought to take away from this. How difficult is it going to be for us to share the gospel convincingly with people if we are not living it in the first place by the power of the Holy Spirit? Because if we say, well, I love Jesus and I believe in Jesus and you got to believe in Jesus and he will rescue you and save you and you get hauled in front of the court and they say, you know, you can't say those things about Jesus. 
maybe in some future day in our country, or in reality, in multiple places around the world. You can't say that. We believe in Allah here. You can't say that. We are an atheist state in China, and the, the state is God, not some God who you, you proclaim. You're hauled in front of them. You say, you need to believe in Jesus, and they'll say, you've done nothing to contribute to the good of your neighbors. You've done nothing to make this world a better sort of place. I don't see any acts of power through you by the Holy Spirit that you claim to believe in. See, the foundation that the Holy Spirit is working on here is that he was already active in the lives of Peter and John and the rest of the Christians. And folks, if we want to have a powerful ministry in Lemon Cove, we better start looking like Jesus Christ. We better start living like him. Not just avoiding doing bad things. Sometimes don't we boil Christianity down to that? It's a bunch of don'ts. Don't steal. Don't murder. Don't have sex before you're married. Don't have sex with people other than the people you're supposed to have sex with in the first place. We just want to limit you and, and fit you into this cage of living. Does Christianity ever feel like that? Is that how people outside the church often perceive Christianity? Is that how you live and perceive your faith? Or is there life and vitality in our following of Jesus? Is it not just about what we don't do, but about the lives that we live are we just cutting things out of this life? Or are we finding life for the first time in Jesus Christ? The Holy Spirit is able to vindicate Peter and John before the Sanhedrin, before the Jewish council, because they were already relying on the Holy Spirit for their life. If you're wondering how to do that, you know, it's hard because it's not under our control. That's the whole point. If God is actually God and the Holy Spirit is actually God, then the Holy Spirit calls the shots. Not, not me, not you, not any of us, not even in our own lives. The Holy Spirit calls the shots. He decides where to strengthen us and where to leave us weak. He decides where to make it easy and where to leave it hard. But if we want to cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, it's really not complicated. We listen for God's voice and his word, first of all. Because you know who wrote the word of God? It was human beings moved by the Holy Spirit. Listen to his If we're standing around saying, God, I just want you to speak to me and we're not reading the word of God, do you think the Holy Spirit's going to answer? So you'd be like, yeah, you clearly really want to hear what I have to say when you're not reading the book I wrote. Let, let me give you some good news, though, about being in the scriptures. Uh, later in this passage, in verse 25, the apostles quote from uh, Psalm 2. 
They say this, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Now, there's a good chance that you've read Psalm 2 at one point uh, in your life because the Psalms are actually really important and significant to most Christians because they, they're the voice of Christians, uh, of God's people, not just Christians, but before, there was, before Jesus came, so the Jews, the voice of these people grappling with what does it mean to, to follow God in my life? What does it mean you know, when things aren't working out right? What is it? How do I praise God for all the good that he's done to me? That's, the Psalms are all about this stuff. A good chance you've read Psalm 2. There's a good chance that when you read it, you were just like me. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. How do I apply that today? I don't know. You have that experience? You read your Bible and you're like, what the heck are you talking about? I don't understand. This is, it might, it might as well be gibberish. Anyone ever had that experience? I'm raising my hand. Anyone else here? Yeah, you people with your hands down are liars. <laughs> Seriously. But when the apostles have this experience, they say, now I understand. This is what David was talking about when he wrote that psalm. Here we are, and, and we just got hauled in front of the leaders of our own people, and they're the ones raging and plotting and conspiring and rising up against God. And you know what? It's in vain. Because here we are. The Holy Spirit has vindicated us. We healed that guy. They're out there conspiring and plotting, and it'll never work. If you're reading your Bible and you think, I don't get it, I don't understand it, that's okay, because we're on a lifetime reading plan for our lifetime. For our lifetime. Yeah, you know, when you went to school, and you learned whatever it is that you learned. You, know, you learned math, or you learned history, or you learned English, or whatever it was. And I know you asked the question, because everyone in their twisted and rebellious heart asked the question, when will I ever use this in real life? Right? Because you're not using it today most of the time. But there does come a day when you use a lot of that education, doesn't there? That math... When you're, in, when you're trying to figure out exactly how much a gallon of gas costs today, and you're saying it is 70 cents more, you know, this week than it was last week, or whatever the calculus is, we're using those skills. You may not use them today, but that doesn't make them useless, does it? And all of God's Word is like that, too. You want to cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, you've got to listen to His Word and let it get inside you and start to transform you. You want to cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, you got to pray. Got to pray. Something, I, I have these notes in front of me, and uh, they apparently mean nothing uh, this morning, which is really interesting because we're already, you know, I'm all out of order, but you got to pray. Let me go to the end of the passage here, this last section, verses 23 to 31. 
It says, when Peter and John were released, they went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. They say, this is what we know about you. You are the maker of everything, which means that you have power over everything. You are sovereign. You are the king and the ruler. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage, like we just said? Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city, and they're the ones who killed Jesus. They conspired against you. They fulfilled this passage. But what they were doing, and they didn't understand this, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. They thought they were conspiring against you, but really they were doing exactly what you'd planned. You are absolutely sovereign and powerful, and, and the people who oppose you are absolutely at a loss, and they can do nothing against what you are planning to do. Now, when you hear this, does this give you reason to think, we can do this? Like, we can be bold, we can be courageous, because God is the God who's in charge of all of this, and the Sanhedrin's not outside of his control, and the president, and the Supreme Court, and the schools and the churches, and everything everywhere. They are not outside of his control. And no matter what the response is, it won't be a diversion from God's plan. God will do exactly what he wants to accomplish, and it will be amazing, and it will be spectacular. That's what they're saying. They've just said all of this is true. And then what do they do? What do they do? Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Wait a minute. They just gave every reason why they should be bold. And now they're asking to be bold? How does that work? Do you get the contradiction here? Someone nod at me or shake your head so I know that we're following. Okay? Why are they asking for boldness? See, it's one thing to know it, isn't it? It's one thing to know it. And it's another thing to live it. I know that if I have a bowl of ice cream before I go to bed, I'll be a little more disappointed when I step on the bathroom scale in the morning. I know it. But I am not willing to live it, folks. (laughs) I am not. I know that if I try and and get the right thing in the wrong way, that ultimately that wrong way, that sin will poison that thing I'm trying to get, whatever it may be. And it won't be what I thought it was, and it will let me down, and it will disappoint me. Folks, it's one thing to know it, and it's another thing to live it. How do we bridge from knowing to living? See, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. And we access that power through prayer. God, we have every reason in the world to be bold and without fear. We know it. But apart from your Holy Spirit, we will never live it. So if there's just one thing we need to take away from this passage this morning, It's that if we really want to be a church that doesn't just sit here and twiddle our thumbs until the last one of us is gone, if we really want to be a church that sees transformation in ourselves 
and in the community around us. Prayer is the bridge to get us there. Prayer is the way to go. And I want to ask you, I want to use every resource at my disposal this morning to get you to pray. And to get you to pray harder than you were before. Not because God's going to look at you and he's going to say, oh man, look at that person praying. You get a lot of points today. But because God will start to transform you and through you he will start to transform me. And through our transformation he will start to transform our community. And folks, we live in a world that needs transformation. Have you been following the headlines? Of course you've been following the headlines the past two to three weeks. You know, the Cold War is starting again. I can't tell the future, so take my words with a grain of salt. But doesn't it feel that way? We had like this 30-year hiatus. The Soviet Union fell in 1990, and then you know, as Americans, we didn't have fear anymore about you know, how we we're going to, yeah, there was terrorism, but you know, it's not nuclear war. And now that specter is back, isn't it? Does our world need transformation? Were the last 30 years in some way the false summit the mirage of the life that we want. You know, uh, if you study history, if you take a look at the First World War and the Treaty of Versailles that ended it, the consensus of most historians is that really World War II was just a continuation of World War I. Because the treaty that ended World War I simply solidified the problems that Europe was already facing. Now, I can't give you all of the way things are working here in the 21st century and you know, why we're back here or seemingly possibly back where we left off in the early 90s. But I can tell you that the things that made us so happy the last 30 years were not the answer. The things that gave us peace the last 30 years were only good for 30 years of peace. This world needs to be transformed. As your pastor, as a spiritual authority in your lives, wherever you are, you need to pray. God, make me like Jesus. Give me the Holy Spirit so that I can minister like Jesus. And I know I've got every reason for boldness. I know I do. But knowing and living are not the same. Strengthen me by your Holy Spirit to be bold. That word that's translated bold there, it's the Greek word parousia. And it really has the connotation of just being a straight shooter in some sense. Just telling the truth as it is. And so it carries that connotation of boldness, right? Not, not compromising. Not when you're like, ooh, they're going to be really mad if I, if I say this or I'm going to offend the authorities if I say this. You know, but, but instead just saying, this is the truth about Jesus and about what he will do for you if you follow him and what life is like without him. That's it. That's what they were asking for. Did you notice in, in their sermon, and I'm going to end on this, 
Do you notice in Peter's sermon? Let, let me read it to you briefly again. Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, right? Given the Holy Spirit to speak. Rulers and elders of the people. If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Did you hear any fancy theological terms in Peter's sermon? Did you hear any incredible spiritual insights that are out of your grasp in Peter's sermon? Can you preach Peter's sermon? I think you can. I think you can. If I was to summarize Peter's sermon, you know what it is? You need to follow Jesus. He's the only one who knows the way out of death into life. Because he's been there before us. You need to follow Jesus. As not just your pastor, but as your fellow worker, Would you pray this week with me? Would you pray that God will fill each person in this church with the Holy Spirit so that we will live in a way that people say, that looks like Jesus. So that we will speak in a way that the people around us can hear, you need to follow Jesus. And so that God will transform our church each one of us individually and our surrounding community to follow Jesus.